And now hear God's holy word from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, continuing our study in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Pay close attention. This is God's holy word. I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we ask that as we come into this encounter with your word, that your Holy Spirit would fill us, that you would illumine our thoughts and our minds, that we would understand what your servant Paul was communicating to the church, what you inspired him by your Holy Spirit to write. And Father, may we make proper application in our own context, in our own day, to understand what is pleasing to you. So Father, guide us through this study today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a challenge for you. Tell me the story of Europe from 1930 to 1945 without mentioning Germany or World War II. Can you do that? Can you talk about Europe from 1930 to 1945, but don't say anything about Germany, nothing about World War II? If you don't like that, how about this? Tell me the story of the 1960s in the United States, but don't say anything about the civil rights movement, and don't say anything about the war in Vietnam. You can't say anything about those two things, otherwise I want a full and complete comprehensive view of the 1960s. You're not up for it? How about this? How about describing our society over the last two decades, but you can't talk about September 11th, 2001. You can't talk about that, but somehow describe our society over the last 20 years. I suppose it might be an interesting challenge to try to do some of those things, but, but what's the point? How can you interpret these periods of history while ignoring the most significant events within that period? If you leave out those central movements, you're left with a stream of facts and figures and names that just don't, just don't fit together. How different is that from attempting to read the New Testament in a vacuum, ignoring the earth shattering reality of the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, the dispersion of the Jews throughout the ancient world, and the subsequent intensification of persecution against Christians in the Roman Empire throughout the first, second, and third centuries. Much of the New Testament is misunderstood when we fail to realize what is looming in the future from the perspective of Jesus and the apostles. When we ignore what's out there, what's about to happen, 
and we read the New Testament in a vacuum, we misunderstand much of what is said and done. And we fail to realize that urgency and that haste that colors so much of what is, is written in the New Testament with this, with this expectation of destruction and persecution. Now, this, this urgency that they have in the New, New Testament is not driven by an assumption that the space-time universe is about to fold in on itself. That's not what they're looking forward to. But what they're looking forward to is the reality that the old world of the old covenant is coming to a close. The lights are about to go out in Jerusalem. When it comes to the things of the old covenant, the sun, moon, and stars are about to go out on that old world and a new life and a new world is being born in the midst of this with the gospel and the church and, and life on the other side of the resurrection. But until that happens, until the old world is finally put away, until the new world comes in completely, life is going to be extremely difficult for a while until the church has established her presence in the world. So with the coming judgment against Jerusalem in the temple hanging over the text, so much of what Jesus says comes into such sharper clarity. When Jesus tells a young man to sell everything that he has and follow him, or he tells another young man who, who will follow Jesus, but he says, first, I've got to go back and bury my father. What does Jesus say to him? He says, let the dead bury their dead. You've got to come with me now if you're going to come. Don't go back and bury your father. What Jesus is saying in these cases is not, no one should ever own property ever. He's not saying no one should ever bury their father. That's not what he's saying. It, Jesus told a parable about a great dinner party that was being given. The invitation goes out and there are some who hear the invitation who says, they say, I can't come. I just got married or I can't come. I just bought land or I can't come. I just bought oxen. And those are the people who get left out of the dinner party. Now, in telling this parable, Jesus is not demeaning or diminishing marriage or land ownership or animal husbandry. You can buy oxen, you can buy land, you can be married. But Jesus is making these hard and fast rulings, these statements calling for a choice right now. Are you gonna join this new world? Or are you gonna hang back there in the old world that's passing away? Jesus says these things because there's an extreme urgency to his mission. There's very little time left from the perspective of Jesus and the apostles. Contrast this for just a moment with how Elijah responded to Elisha. Elijah called Elisha to come follow him. And Elisha says, great, uh, please let me go back and kiss my mom and dad goodbye. And then I'll catch up with you. And Elijah is very nonchalant. He says, sure, whatever you want to do. I mean, what have, what have I got to do with you is what he says. I, I don't, that's fine. Cut, catch up with me later. So, uh, there's a heightened degree of urgency in Jesus's day as compared to Elijah's day. You see, would Jesus tell someone, oh, sure, go back and, and kiss mom and dad? No, that's not what Jesus says. And he's got plenty of opportunities to say it. Jesus wants you to drop everything right now and come and join me now. See, in the first century, there was a lot to do and a short time to do it. The old world is winding down. 
at the beginning of Acts, and I'll give you one more example of where this gets misunderstood and so misinterpreted so easily. At the beginning of Acts, church members sell their property and they pool their resources. Why? Because God wants us to be communists. That's what that means, right? God wants us to be Marxists. No, no. Why do they sell their property and pool their resources to take care of the poor? It's because Jerusalem is about to be a really bad place to own real estate. The market is about to crash. It's time to get out. It's time to move on and take the gospel with you as you go. So if we read the New Testament, Outside of this historical context, we'll come away with all these bad ideas about marriage and property ownership and responsibility to your family. And, you know, well, you can't ever own oxen because you're not supposed to uh, uh, own oxen and be in the kingdom as well. We would, we would get these weird ideas. We would think that marriage is pointless and every Christian would be better off living a solitary monastic life. That's the, that's the idea we would come away with if we read everything in this wooden way. But that would be very, very wrong. The terrible desolation that is headed for Jerusalem, the press of persecution that is coming on the whole Jewish race, the inevitable suffering and martyrdom coming upon the church colors so much of what is written. And in this section of 1 Corinthians is no exception. Paul's instruction here on marriage and singleness and divorce is all couched in the same language of diversity. In the section that we're going to study today, he talks about this present distress in verse 26. In verse 28, he points to the troubles that are coming. In verse 29, he says, the time is short. That sounds a lot like the first few chapters of Revelation, doesn't it? The, the, the time is near. The time is at hand. Uh, the time is very short. In, in verse 31, he says, the form of this world is passing away. So this, this same sense of urgency is all over what Paul writes here on the subject of marriage and singleness and, uh, and, and divorce. And in, in this turbulent time, Christians in Corinth have a number of questions with regard to how identifying with Christ has shaped their relationships together as men and women and how those relationships are going to be affected by the coming wave of persecution and the coming wave of suffering. They had questions like this. I'm a believer. My spouse isn't. Should I divorce them or should I stay married? Or questions like, I'm single or I'm widowed. Should I even think about marriage in the first place now? Am I commanded to marry? Am I required to marry? Am I commanded not to marry? What about my adult children? Should I counsel them to be married in this time? I have daughters. Should I give them in marriage or should I keep them from marriage? So these are the questions that Paul takes up in this next section. And, and his instruction is straightforward and very clear if we keep this present distress as the, as the headline. This is what hangs over this whole, this whole text. Uh, looking back at history, we know that things are not going to be always like they were in the first century. The church is not always going to be under this level of duress and public persecution. When the church gets a toehold in the world, when she establishes her place, it's going to be much easier to settle in, get married, have babies, start businesses, build houses, brew beer, you know, paint, 
write, do all these things, compose, produce, it's, it's going to be easier in the future. But for now, they're at a point where the church is going to grow more through conversion than procreation. And Paul is going to reassure them at this point that in this period, if they don't get married and if they don't have children, the church is still going to make it. It's going to abound and grow. You see, Jesus himself, Jesus didn't have 12 children. Jesus had 12 apostles. Paul's children, who, who were Paul's offspring? Well, his offspring were the churches. His offspring were Timothy and Titus. So these first century converts to the faith, these first century converts to faith in Jesus are, are given the spiritual strength to endure through suffering and carry the gospel to the ends of the world. Their work is going to pave the way for future generations to enjoy a more peaceful climate where they could raise up children and do all these culture building things. But in light of what's coming in very short order, in these first few verses, Paul addresses three different groups. People who are married. I'm sorry, people who were married but now aren't. Married people within the church and people married to an unbeliever. The question for all of them is the same. How should this present distress affect our married status? Now, to the unmarried, he says this. It is good for you to remain as you are. It is good for you to remain even as I am. Paul is in the same position as a single man. I said last week, he most definitely would have been married if he were a member of the Sanhedrin. You couldn't be a member of Sanhedrin unless you were a married Jewish man. So Paul had to have been married at some point. We don't know if his wife passed away. We don't know if she left him when he became a Christian, but he was married and now he's not. And, and as a single man in this position, he doesn't want them feeling any societal pressure to marry. Even, even if they um, are, are, you know, kind of like the idea of marriage, if they can remain single, if they find that they're able to live comfortably in a state of singleness, he doesn't want them to be ashamed of their singleness because, in fact, it frees them up in several ways for the work of the kingdom. And on the other hand, he says, but if you desire to marry... If it is killing you not to be married and you seriously desire a spouse, by all means, get married and don't be ashamed. You see, he doesn't want any man or any woman to be on fire with passion and have, have no legitimate biblical means of, of feeding their sexual desire. He says this in, in verse 9. Um, if they cannot ex exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is be better to marry than to burn with passion. The temptations toward fornication and all expressions of, of sexual idolatry, these temptations are real and they're strong. Sexual temptation is one of the most successful plays that Satan has in his playbook to uh, create unbelief and, and, and disorder in our lives. Um, it's, it's an old uh, pastoral joke when somebody tells you, you know, I don't think I believe the gospel anymore. Your first question is, what's her name? That's, that's the first question. Who are, you, who are you committing adultery with? Because this is a place where Satan can find a, can find a foothold so easily. 
uh, and because there is only one holy, righteous expression of human sexual desire, and that is within the covenant of marriage, there's only one way to get that thirst quenched. So if you have that thirst, if you have that desire, you ought to and should get married. But, Paul adds, neither marriage nor singleness equal a higher spiritual state. What we're after, whether we're single or whether whether we're married, is pleasing God in the status that we find ourselves in. So to to the married, the instruction is very simple. He says, don't divorce. Don't divorce because of tribulation. Don't kill your marriage through sin or unfaithfulness. Don't think you have an escape route to celibacy. Remember last week we saw that perhaps some thought maybe what spiritual life requires is absolute celibacy. Even if you're married, the, the clue is let's, let's flee all of this, uh, this physical stuff. And so maybe the way to celibacy is through divorce because I just don't want to fulfill my marital duties. I don't want to do what's required of me. But, but Paul stops that in his tracks. He says, if you kill your marriage just because you don't want to work things out or because you don't want to be faithful and you don't want to repent of your sin, if you kill your marriage, you've got two choices. Remain un- unmarried or, or be reconciled. And this cuts in both directions. His, his instruction is for both men and women, both men and women, both husbands and wives have a mutual obligation to their marriage. It's, it's not all on one party or the other to keep the marriage alive. Paul doesn't let men off the hook. He doesn't let women off the hook. Uh, very often in conservative churches, when we call men to faithfulness to their marriage, especially in this feminist age where it feels like we're swimming upstream and we're, we're cutting against the grain by asking for men to take responsibility, it can sound sometimes as if we think all the weight, all the duty to please God in our marriages falls on men alone, that all the responsibility belongs to men. That's not what Paul is writing here. Now, we've all known godly women who are suffering in bad marriages under passive or abusive, bullying, disconnected, loveless men. We know those situations, but there's another reality. There's another reality of men who are, who are pouring themselves out to love and pursue and woo their wives who are cold and spiteful and manipulative and refuse to be content and they just insist on being impossible to please. And so as often as we call men to faithfulness, to be faithful to their duties, we must also not forget that women have duties to their marriage as well. Both men and women are called here to fidelity. Both men and women, husbands and wives, have a responsibility to build up their marriages. Uh, there's no, uh, there, there's no uh, inequality here of responsibility. Uh, Paul is not addressing every little angle of divorce here. He knows that they have the Gospels at this point. He knows they have Jesus' teaching. He's writing the church in this context, urging the married to remain married and for neither party to initiate divorce. Now, from here, he moves to a, a, a different question, the subject of whether a believer is expected to remain married to an unbeliever. Now, imagine you're living in this pagan Greek city. You're married, and then you find Jesus. You trust in Jesus and you, you uh, uh, put all of your faith in him for your eternal life, for everything. And then, and then 
your wife or your husband doesn't believe, what do you do, what do, you do now? How do you live in the same house with someone who has a different definition of marriage than you? Because you've, you've passed from darkness to light. How do you live with someone who is still in darkness? How do you manifest that, that one flesh living together with someone who is still in darkness? Why, why can't you just divorce them and marry a believer? That seems to be a solution. What Paul says, here's the answer. If the unbeliever is willing to live with you, don't divorce him. Maybe, perhaps, through your patience, you will win him. Uh, Paul refers to the Old Testament categories of, of cleanness and uncleanness to describe what takes place. He says this in verse 14. He says, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. You see, uh, things don't work the way that they used to under the Old Covenant. In the Old Covenant, the clean would be made unclean by coming into contact with something that was defiled. It was easy to become impure under the Old Covenant. It was, it was easy to be ceremonial un, uh, ceremonially unclean. There were many, many, many ways that you could become unclean. It took a, a, a series of, of uh, sacramental um, liturgical acts to become clean again under the, old, under the Old Covenant. But that's not how things work anymore. It's not uncleanness that spreads so easily. It's not death that spreads so easily here on the other side of the resurrection, on the other side of the crucifixion of Jesus. His blood cleanses the earth. His blood cleanses all things. So now holiness and cleanness and life is more powerful than corruption and death. Life is more powerful than death. So in the new covenant, cleanness spreads. And because of that, your unbelieving spouse if they are content to stay with you, you stay with them because the holiness might spread. You might convince them. They might become a Christian. Who knows what the Lord will do? This life only, uh, not only may spread to your spouse, but it definitely spreads to your children too. If there's just one believing parent, the children have promise of life in the covenant. If on the other hand, Paul says, if, if the unbelieving spouse insists on leaving, let them go and accept their decision. You are no longer under bondage and you are free to remarry. Let them go. And the, the, the principle here is that the one who has been sinned against, the one who's been the victim of the covenant breaking in the marriage is free. They're not under bondage. But, but let it be the pagan who sins against the marriage and not the Christian. Don't let the don't let the Christian sin against the marriage. But if the unbeliever is determined to break covenant, Paul puts no pressure on the believer to fight for it. The guiding principle is peace. Verse 15, he says, if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. And what this shows us is, is that even though divorce is terrible and it's destructive and it's undesirable, 
in many cases, it's necessary for the protection of the innocent party. Moses allowed for divorce. Jesus allowed for it. Paul does not deny its necessity. You see, does this mean we don't hate divorce? Well, of course we hate divorce. I hate divorce. I hate divorce the same way I hate the death penalty, the same way that I hate excommunication. I hate it. It's terrible, but sometimes it's necessary. Sometimes the death penalty is necessary. Sometimes excommunication is necessary, and so is divorce for the protection of the innocent party who's being sinned against. Now, while we're talking about remaining married, if you were married when you were converted, Paul's going to talk about a, a few other life circumstances and talk about our obligations under the gospel. I want to move through this next section um, briskly, but I do want to cover everything. Uh, but I promise you that I'm, I'm aware of the chunk that we have left and the time that we have left, but, but we'll try to do the best we can. Verse 17. But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is also called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in the state in which he was called. So two other life conditions that might seem to affect your standing in the church or your standing in the community of faith are, are living culturally as a circumcised Jew and also being a slave. And we'll take both of those in order. If you come into the church as a circumcised Jew, Paul says, it's okay if you remain and identify culturally, nationally as a Jew. When he says, let him not be uncircumcised, he isn't saying, um, you know, you, what he's saying is you don't have to now identify as a, as a Gentile. It's fine. I think the ESV says uh, something about the marks of circumcision there. You don't, have to, you don't have to put off your Jewish identity. You are ethnically a Jew. Stay that way. If you aren't circumcised, you don't have to be circumcised. You have no obligation to take the sign of the covenant. And so verse 19 would have been highly controversial in the Jewish community. Paul says, again, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. And you can imagine someone shouting, but circumcision is one of the commandments of God. And so I'm frustrated by this fact that Paul is saying circumcision is nothing. It's everything. No, um, everything that Paul writes presupposes that the law is supposed to be read through Christ. The whole Old Covenant is filtered through Christ and the cross since Christ is the end of the law. Now, Paul develops this more completely in Romans. But Paul has spent enough time with the Corinthians that they should know what he means here when he says circumcision means nothing and uncircumcision means nothing. In fact, in Christ, in, in his fulfillment of the old covenant, all of the signs and the feasts and the ceremonial laws have all been transformed. None of them stay the same and none of them bring you closer to God. There are no longer these degrees of holiness in the church that there were in the old covenant. He goes on to say, if you're a slave, 
don't be concerned about it. Don't be anxious about it. If you have a chance to become free, take it. If not, serve your master as you would serve the Lord. If you're free, don't become a slave. God calls you as you are, so use your position, use your present state without shame, without pining for someone else's position or someone else's status. Don't bow to social pressures regarding circumcision or freedom or marriage. Remain as you are until and unless God opens up other opportunities in other areas. Now, the point is not that we should never desire to change our position, that we should never desire to change our status. What he points to is that none of these things have any relevance to our standing before God. Paul says in another place, and I've quoted this, read this many times. I read it last week. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. Interesting, these are the very same categories he's talking about here in 1 Corinthians. He's talking about in Galatians. He says, there is no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. When it comes to our value in the kingdom, when it comes to our place in Jesus, there aren't degrees of nearness to God the way that there was in the old covenant. And this too was controversial to the old covenant mindset. And, and male Jews, to this day still pray an ancient prayer that goes something like this. They say, "I, I thank you, God, that I was not born a Gentile. I thank you, God, that I was not born a slave. I thank you, God, that I was not born a woman. Because they believe that their earthly status of being a male free Jew has somehow put them in near position to God. And Paul cuts out every one of those categories. He says none of these things matter. Jesus has turned all of this inside out. In fact, he says, the slave is actually free and the freeman is a slave. Verse 22, for he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. So all of their social and cultural and ethnic and racial and sexual distinctions are nothing compared to the new life in which through the gospel, all Christians are brought together as one and there is no one any more or less closer to God than another. Though we're always looking for ways to rank, we're always looking for ways that we can justify exalting ourselves over another. There are all kinds of unnecessary, unbiblical social pressures that that Paul addresses in general throughout this letter. And that's why he brings up circumcision and bondage in the very same breath as marriage. These things, these, these, these ways of living, these ways of being human, these conditions of living are peripheral to the gospel and things that that we can never let get in the way of the gospel or define us. Though in churches even today, these kinds of things are always elbowing their way in. Maybe it's not freedom. Maybe it's not circumcision. Maybe it's not marriage, though it could be. But we're always tempted to to identify as something other than people who belong to Jesus. We're always looking for other distinctives aside from the gospel, setting setting these these little boundaries, little tweaks of boundaries that, that identify us. And this is our identity. I've known faithful churches who have lived and preached and taught in such a way that it seems like unless you are an agrarian, somehow you're not really a faithful Christian. 
unless you own, you know, 37 acres and have a herd of cattle and make your own butter, you're not really serious about being a Christian. The flip side of that is I've also known uh, churches who think unless you sell everything you have and move downtown to the middle of the city, you know, kind of the bombed out part of the city, um, and move your family there and live and start a, an inner city church, then you're really not faithful to the gospel. You're not really faithful as a Christian. See, these are uh, identities that are fine. They're, it's okay. You want to live in a city? You want to do that work? God bless you. You want to have a farm? I, I like cows. It's fine. It's fine. Do that. It's absolutely fine. But that's not the gospel, right? That, that's neither of these. Some people are called to do this or that. But there are also people who are, you know, grow up in a small town in Iowa, you know, live in town. They work at the post office and they're faithful Christians. And it's not, they're not any less or more faithful than the person who, who moves to downtown you know, East St. Louis or Baltimore. That's, they're not any more or less. Um, can, can you live in, you know, a, a suburban, you know, Raleigh and still be a faithful Christian? Absolutely. You absolutely can. You, you think, you think uh, maybe I'm making a straw man here, but I, I actually heard, I heard of a church, and I'm going to give you an extreme crazy example of this. I heard of a church one time that had a podiatrist as an elder in the church, a podiatrist, somebody who works on feet, right? Um, and this man was convicted that shoes are bad for the formation and the, and the development of children's feet. So that because of this strong conviction that the elder had, all of the children in the church ran around barefoot because of this one elder's conviction. Now imagine visiting that church for the first time and noticing that none of the kids are wearing shoes. Uh, incidentally, it was in Alabama, so maybe that wasn't a big deal. I don't know, but um, I think it was in Alabama. Um, but, but you would think, are these people poor? Are they, are they doing okay? I mean, do they? Um, but, you know, so this is the barefoot church, right? This is what's important to these people. This is their identity. This is their, this is their mark of circumcision. This is, their, this is their shibboleth for the gospel. This is, in order to be part of this church, I guess I have to have barefoot kids, I guess, because I don't, certainly don't want to put up with the societal pressure of putting, you know, sneakers on my kids' feet. When we let kooky, tertiary lifestyle choices, when we let personal family preferences dominate in the church, we obscure the gospel. And we're putting up these little crazy roadblocks to Jesus and insisting, you know, if you want to know Jesus here, if you want to get to know the Lord Jesus, you have to do this nutty thing to be accepted. And Paul says, no, these are not the distinctions that are going to define you. Not circumcision, not freedom, not marriage, not singleness. And we could add to that things that we have seen and experienced today. Those, those concerns are different in our day, but we still have to be extremely vigilant, uh, vigilant. We have to be extremely vigilant that we're not replacing the gospel with other things. So, so what is central and what is, what is primary? What is vital? Let's see this develop over the next few verses. And I'm just going to uh, make a couple comments, but my goal is to get to the end. Verse 25. He says, now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. 
He's spoken to the widow. He's spoken to the married. He's spoken to those married to unbelievers. Now he turns to young people and those who are engaged to be married. And he's, he's talking about the virgins. And virgin in the strictest sense um, is young unmarried women. But in the context of the rest of this chapter, he, refuse, he, he uses it to refer to either young women or young men who are not yet, not yet married or who are engaged. And the question is, should engaged couples go through with the wedding or should they call it off given this present distress? And so he says this in verse 26. I suppose, therefore, that it is good because of the present distress that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loose from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. So if you're engaged, he says, keep the engagement. If your engagement has been broken off, don't seek a wife. He says this because he knows what is coming and he wants to spare them the heartache of what's going to happen when you live in a day when you can't provide for your wife and children, when you watch the people you love be tortured and killed unless they recant and, and, and reject the Lord Jesus Christ, he, he doesn't want them going through this. He doesn't want them going into it unaware, at least. It's going to be hard to put food on the table. You might not have a place to lay down your head at night. Now, see, a single man can go through some of these hardships and be okay, but it's much more bitter when you have little mouths to feed. Young women can make it on their own. You can get together with other people. You can figure out some kind of domestic uh, situation where you're working and, and you, you uh, are, are able to make it, but marriage and children complicate things for both men and women. And all these things fall under his phrase, trouble in the flesh. And if, and if you're in any way on the fence about getting married, he says, I want to save you the heartache. He says, I desire to spare you. His motivation is strictly pastoral. In other words, he says, some of you are rejecting marriage because it, you think it makes you more spiritual. It doesn't make you more spiritual to reject marriage. But I'm warning you of some very physical realities of being married and living through what is coming. You're worried about the spiritual aspect. I'm telling you, that's not what you need to be worried about. You need to be worried about the physical uh, suffering that is coming. Verse 29, but I say, brethren, the time is short so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use this world as not misusing it. For the form of this world is passing away. As the old world passes away, a lot of things are being shaken up and being reordered. Jesus said something very similar about these days. He says, pray that such days will not come upon you when you're pregnant or nursing an infant. Jesus said that. Paul is gripped with this reality that he wants to spare them from this suffering if he can. Verse 32, but I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of this world, how he may please his wife. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, that you may serve the Lord without 
distraction. I want you to be without distraction. I want you to be without care. You've gotten everybody worked up over whether it's more spiritual to be married or staying single. I just want you to realize the real cost of being married, he says. But I don't want to put a leash on you. I know other people have tried to put a leash on you and put all kinds of pressure on you. I don't want to distract you from serving the Lord, either as a single person or as a married person. Verse 36. Um, so if any man thinks he is behaving improperly toward his virgin, if she is past the flower of youth, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let them marry. Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but has power over his own will, and has so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin, does well. So then he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. But she is happier if she remains as she is, according to my judgment, and I think I also have the Spirit of God. So, so marriage is always proper between two Christians. Over and over, Christian marriage is defined in terms of love and, and mutual sexual satisfaction and, and affection. God designed marriage to be a relationship of passion, of desire, of pleasure, a total sharing of life and body. Celibacy is only proper if one has the calling and the ability to live in, as a single person in holiness of life. If you can't live a single life in purity, then get married. But if you can, if you can live a celibate life in purity, well then we consider that a blessing. Look at all the time and all the energy you can devote to the kingdom. We are to view celibacy and singleness as a blessing if someone is able to do that. And I'm afraid uh, in many churches, we haven't fully worked out what it looks like to be a faithful single person. We have a lot of support and a lot of encouragement, a lot of teaching for married people for how to be married and stay married and raise children. I don't, I don't think we've fully worked out or understand what singleness looks like in our age. Uh, but we have a duty toward singles, and I'd be interested in your thoughts if, if you have some insights or you have some thoughts on what that looks like for the church today. But in spite of our weaknesses in this age, unmarried people, you still have a duty to use your gift of time and energy and resources for the kingdom. Single people, you have a relationship to the Lord Jesus that needs to overflow in all kinds of ways for the benefit and the flourishing of the kingdom. If singleness is a gift, and God's word says it is, if it is a gift, it is not a gift to be enjoyed in isolation. God doesn't call you as a single person so that you can stay by yourself and, you know, get weird by yourself because that's what we do when we're single. I did as a single man. I just, you develop weird habits and weird thoughts and you are the only person you ever have to live with. And so it, and the longer you stay that way, the weirder you are. But God doesn't call you as a single person to do that. If, if the unmarried woman and the unmarried man are called to care about the things of the Lord, and the scripture says they are, so then, if you are unmarried, show us what that looks like. Show us what it means to be a single person who is pursuing the kingdom. Don't be afraid to exercise your gifts and show us what God has called you to do as a single man or a single woman. In either case, I'm, I'm wrapping it up. We're, we're forbidden from considering either marriage or considering singleness as more holy than the other. 
And the church has not always gotten this right through history, right? I mean, there were times where celibacy was exalted over marriage, and it may be the reverse today, where marriage is exalted over singleness. But we don't get to add requirements to the gospel. We don't get to burden people's consciousness with, with extra expectations. What Paul is teaching is this. When it comes to your standing before God, when it comes to your place in the kingdom, when it comes to the preaching of the gospel, the real issue is not your station in life. The biggest concern for us is not whether we're married or not, what is our ethnicity, whether or not we are free, but whether we live the life that we are given in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. So our status has very little to do with our capacity for faithfulness. And changing status is not what's going to make us faithful. We think it does. We tend to think that our problems are our circumstances. Our problems are the people around us. Our, our, our problems are our life situation. And if we could just change the people around us, if we could just change our circumstances, if we could just change our status, then all of our problems go away. But that's absolutely false ungrateful, unfaithful, spiteful, single people become ungrateful, unthankful, spiteful, married people. That, that, this changing the status doesn't change who you are. Uh, whatever you are and wherever you are, serve Jesus. And if he's pleased to change your status, then, then it will change. But until then, serve Jesus the Lord Jesus. All of your happiness, all the things that you think make you happy, your marriage, your husband, your wife, your children, your home, your pursuits, your work, your circle of friends, all of these things will be ultimately unsatisfying, will bring you nothing but heartache unless you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Jesus said, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Jesus promised that anybody who left houses, left family, left fields, for his sake, would receive a hundredfold blessing and would inherit eternal life. You see, that's not where our, our identity and before God, where our priorities are. There is a new evaluation, a new economy, a new appraisal in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. What matters is not who you are, but who you serve. Not what you have, not what you've accomplished, but how you are seeking to please God with the station in life that you have been given presently. So wherever you are, whether you're single or married, whether you are uh, 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 employed or looking for employment, whatever situation you are in in your life, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and how you continue to address every single situation in life and every status and every need. Father, I pray that your word would continue to bear fruit in our lives as we meditate on it this week. Uh, uh, make it fruitful by your Holy Spirit as we, as we go about our business and continue to knead these things into our heart. Continue to allow these things to ferment in us and to uh, produce lives that are faithful and pleasing to you in all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.